Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All right, Chapter 4, let's look at this. I know there will be lots of questions. We'll, we'll get through Chapter 4. We'll come back and look at a few things I want to touch on, and then, uh, and then I'll stay and answer any questions you have for the rest of the period. Therefore, my brethren, so based upon what he just said, Therefore, underline therefore maybe 300 times, okay? Look at these therefores. So these are not just random statements of Paul that can be put on bumper stickers, okay? They're not random statements of Paul that you can whack your Baptist friend over the head with or that he can whack you over the head with. Rather, this all has to be read. It's one flowing document that Paul expected Christians in Philippi to hear read in one sitting. How long do you think it would take to read this? The bishop would have unrolled the scroll, he would have started reading, and it probably would have taken, what, maybe 15, 20 minutes, if that, maybe 10? So it's one complete flowing thought of Paul. And so you've really got to read something like this from beginning to end about 300 times, and you start to see how the whole thing is one, one sentence, one big, long sentence. So, therefore... What therefore? Well, based upon what he just talked about. What did he just talk about in chapter 3? Well, that you're not going to be saved through circumcising and keeping kosher. You're going to be saved through Jesus Christ. Saved from what? From sin and death when he raises your bodies from the dead. When he, tran when he transforms your mortal bodies into a glorious body like his when he's in the second coming. Therefore, therefore, right? So what are we waiting for? We've been baptized. We've, re we've been confirmed, chrismated. We've received his body and blood. We have been joined like a member of his body. And I mentioned this last time, I don't like that use of member in our English translations. In modern English member, you think of member. How do you get, well, it means like it's, it's one of many, some, a group in a club or something like that, loosely connected by some similar ideas. I'm a member of the such and such club. Member in the English translation of Paul here, in many places, when he's talking about being a member of the body of Christ, he doesn't mean a member of a club. The word here, member, is being used as you get it used in older English and in the medical field still. The man lost one of his members when it was severed in the saw. Okay? So a member, a finger, a hand, you're a member of the body of Christ. In the Greek, meros, a part a part, a part of the body of Christ, right? A part of the body. So if you have been baptized into Christ, it is you've been raised from the dead spiritually. You've got this, the life of God flowing in you. The spirit of God's in you. You've been joined to his body and his lifeblood, his spirit, his flesh and his blood are one with yours. Well then, if that's the case, what do we do now? Well, we await the second coming of Christ. What do we do? Oprah's on? Well, we got to get to work, right? You've got work to do. 
We don't sit around and stare at a wall. We have work to do. What is the work to do? Paul refers to it as good works. Good works. Let our people, our people thrive and, and aspire to good works. That is, works that actually do something versus the works of the Torah. Circumcision kosher laws do nothing for you. He says, let our people strive toward good works. It is a life of walking according to the spirit that is within us. We are, are as a, a resurrected being in Christ through our baptism. We are spiritually saved, right? You have stage one is complete. And now we are only to maintain that by walking in the spirit. Walking according to the spirit that is within us and not according to the flesh, right? Remember that composite theme. You're going you're gonna to be tempted, right? You're gonna, it, within, you're going to say, this is the right thing to do. I should go right. But your body's going to say, no, 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 let's go left. Remember, we used to always go left here, right? So your body's going to want to do the old things, the old temptations. We can call this concupiscence, that, that unregenerate feeling of wanting to go and, and uh, do the old ways. But in spirit, in your conscience, you know what's right. And so you've got to walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, because you walk where the flesh, you will end in death. Right, your 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 baptism will become an unbaptism. But if you walk according to the Spirit, then you will walk in the ways of Christ, and you die in that state, or Christ raise, comes back before you die. You will find a glorious bodily resurrection and entering into paradise. Again, we'll talk about that at the end. All right. So then he says, therefore, my brethren whom I love and long for, who are now in this period of waiting. My joy and crown. Stand firm, thus, in the Lord. Stand firm. What? What does he mean? Wait, stay where you are. Don't leave the faith, right? He, he talked about this before, right? Hold fast to the traditions I hand on you by word of mouth or by truth. I commend you because you remember me and everything. You imitate me as I imitate Christ. So stand in the faith. Stand in the faith, right? Stand firm in the Lord. Do not waver from your salvific journey. I entreat Evodia. Good song, good music. What a beautiful it's like melody, right? You got another word that's very similar. Evodia. This is a woman in the community. And I, I entreat Evodia and I entreat Sintihi. To agree in the Lord. So there's some sort of a spat going on, right? There's these two women in the community obviously have a disagreement about something. And I, he says, and I ask you also, true yoke fellow, my Philippians, right, who share his burden, help these women, for they have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Look at that, whose names are in the book of life. We'll come back to that at the end, in the book of Revelation. So, so who are these ladies? We don't know. Maybe deaconesses or something, or um, some women in the community who are, who are obviously very important and helping out in the community, possibly deaconesses. The, uh, uh, maybe um, these are dedicated virgins or widows in the community. These the sisterhood, something like that probably. And he's telling him, get along, and he tells the Philippians, my, my, you Philippians, my, my yoke fellows, right? My ones that share the yoke, shoulder the burden with me, like two oxen together. He says, support them and help them, because I'll tell you what, they labored with me in the gospel. 
And then he says in the gospel, together with Clement, Clement. Well, which Clement? Well, Clement, it could be, uh, could be any Clement, but some of the fathers believe that this was a reference to Clement, the Clement that you know of who will eventually be Bishop of Rome, Clement of Rome. This is one of the hints uh, in Philippians that this letter was probably not written in Caesarea, but over in Philippi, or in, in Rome. There's another, uh, another hint to that. We already talked about the Praetorium, right? The Praetorium, the guard and all that. So these things hint at, you know, where, when you look at the captivity epistles, where were they written? Some say, well, in Caesarea, some maybe in Rome. We're not really sure. Well, you can kind of, some of them you can see pretty clearly were written in Rome and not in Caesarea. This would be one of those. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Literally, that's sacramental language there, right? How do you get in the Lord? How are it? Well, it's being a member of the body of Christ. You're, you're in the Lord. Well, how do you do that? Galatians 3.27, all of you have baptized your race have put on Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. That is rejoice in the church, the body of Christ. Rejoice in, in your salvation in Christ. Rejoice in your, your new identity as a new creation. Rejoice in this present walk you have before you. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Right? St. Paul always, always points out that Christ's return is the next stage. That's the next step. That's all we're waiting for now as Christians. So he says this in a number of places. Does Paul believe that, the, that Christ's coming is going to happen within the next five to ten years? At this point, it's possible. We're not really sure what he means by some of this. How, what was his sense of these things? One of the things that's a little difficult for us is that we are not in the pre-70 AD world. For the Christians, they're looking towards, they all know that by 70 AD, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Now, can you imagine for a Christian, Jerusalem's the center of the church at this point. Okay? This is the mother church, that the church in Jerusalem, that Jerusalem, the city, will be destroyed. What will happen to the church? What will happen to the faith? What will, this will, be the sec- will, will Christ return at that point? Those of you who did the Sophia Symposium, the study there in the New Testament, we talked about that issue of, the, of 70 AD and Christ coming on the clouds and all of that. So, when you put yourself back in that pre-70 AD world, you can see how looking forward to the destruction of Jerusalem might have led some Christians to think, well, they don't know. Is this going to be the end? Is this when Christ going to return finally? We know Christ said he's going to come back, and, uh, and these things would happen with one generation. They know 70 AD is coming. The clock is ticking. But is that the actual end end? Is that the actual second coming of Christ? Is there something else? So this was some ambiguity for the Christians in the first century. Today we can look back and see this maybe with a little more clarity, but put yourself in again. Who is the author? At what stage of life? Where was he? Who was the intended audience? Very important for understanding these epistles. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. St. John Climacus says on prayer that it should be tripartite, Trinitarian. 
We should begin our prayer in this way, St. John Climacus says. First, we should begin by praising God, thanking him for who he is and what he has done for us. After that, then we recognize our own failures, of course. In comparison to what, who God is and what he has done, we realize what, who we are and what we have not done. Right? We confess our sin then. We confess our iniquity. We confess our failures to live up to our inheritance as a son of God. We praise God as our Father for who he is and what he's done, and then we recognize our failure as his children to live up to, to the great gifts he has given to us in the sacramental restoration in the church, the Christian walk. And then, part three, then we ask the things of which we need. And it's important to, th- to ask for what we need, right? Any father, any mother wants to hear from their children the things they need or the things they want. And, you know, it gives great joy. Any of you who are parents love to hear their little child say, Daddy, can I have one of these? Now, especially if it's something really good, right? If it's something like some candy and they just asked five minutes ago, no, <laughs> no candy. But when your child asks for something that is beautiful and good for them, you rejoice and you yearn to give it to them. Or if it's something that is, you know, a birthday present or something they might, they might be wanting. Oh, my birthday comes, Daddy, can I have one of these? And you look at it, well, that would be a very nice little toy for him, sure. Right? What father does not take joy in, in going and quickly buying that quietly, making a little surprise, right? And so the same thing here. But when we ask... It should be the last thing we do because then what we ask will be governed by our praise of God and acknowledge of our inadequacy. And usually what we might be asking for by then, by the time we get to part three, might be slightly modified, right? Unfortunately, what do we do? We always begin our prayer in the reverse order, right? Oh, God, please give me this. I need this. I know I've got to have it. I, you know, I, 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 I know I'm not worthy, but, but please, God, you always give me what I need. You are a great God. Right? It's all reversed. But rather, we should praise God for who he is and what he is first, a loving father. Acknowledge our inadequacy. Then we ask for the things which we think we need. And always, as St. John Clemicus says, always always end in this, if it be thy will, right? If it be good for me. Okay. So then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. Let the Lord's hand have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, and by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ, your hearts and your minds. It's been spiritually in Christ. Finally, brethren, so he's talking about remaining in sanctification there. He used modern theological language. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, what is lovely, what is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard, 
in me. Do, and the God of peace will be with you. What? It's not like Paul's trying to set himself as some sort of mediator or something. Well, yeah, because Paul is Jesus Christ. Paul is part of the body of Christ. You cannot have Jesus without the church. The church is Jesus. You are Jesus. You are baptized into his body. And so when you ask for Paul to pray for you, or I ask Daniel to pray for me, right? Well, what I'm doing is I'm asking for Jesus to pray for me. Right? I'm asking for for Daniel or you're asking or for Paul or any of these people, individuals, we're asking for them to exercise their sacramental reality, who they are, right? To pray for us as part of the body of Christ. And so he says, what you have learned and received, highlight that verse nine, what you have learned and received, you've heard this already. We talked about it earlier from First Timothy chapter one and two. We saw it in, in uh, I'm sorry, Second Timothy. We saw it in Second Timothy chapters one and two. We saw it in Second Timothy chapter three, verse ten, etc. We saw it in the same uh, different word, but the same concept. We saw it in Second Thessalonians two fifteen, right? Um, hold to the tradition that hand on you by word of mouth or by or by letter. Again, he says in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verses verse one: Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Get that 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 genealogical handing down in a certain sense of the faith. And then he says, I commend you for you you remember me in all things, holding fast the tradition I hand on to you. Right? What is a tradition? Paradosis in Greek. Paradosis, the handing on of something. Handing on of something. Okay, so then he says, what you have learned and received and heard in, in me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. So, again, how do you know what those things are? We've got this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, but obviously he's referring to things, other stuff, right? Then what? He's talking about the things they've learned and seen in him when he was with them. Well, obviously that's stuff that's not included in this letter. Otherwise, he would say what you have read that I just wrote to you. Do those things. No, he's referring to the things he did with them when he was with them in Philippi on his second and third journey. Well, how do you know what those were? Well, this is why it's so important to read the Apostolic Fathers. Right? We read the early church writings. We read what the early bishops wrote. A bishop writing to a deacon, a deacon writing to a bishop over here, there, or one bishop writing to another in the first century or two. And we learn by reading these things what these other things were. Now, you already know what they are. You live it as a Christian. In the apostolic faith, you celebrate it every Sunday. The liturgical sacramental life of the church is what we're talking about, which is certainly mentioned and hinted at in a number of places in the New Testament. But nowhere in the New Testament do you find a document trying to explain to you what these things are and how to do them. Because these documents, these New Testament writings, were written to communities that already received this, that already been trained in this. None of these things, as I mentioned before, 
None of these epistles or comments were intended to be handed over to some pagan and hope they're going to have a come to Jesus moment. None of this, none of these passages, none of these epistles or these works are what you and I would call a catechism. The closest thing to that is the earliest catechism we find is the Didache. The Didache, written somewhere between 70, as early as 70, maybe as late as 120. Early apostolic catechism that lays out how do you celebrate baptism how do you do it what do you say when you do it how much water do you use should it be hot or cold should it be bubbling or do you have, how how do you celebrate the eucharist what do you use how do you do it what do you say when you do it that's a catechism or a sacramentary kind as well so all wrapped up as one and um and that you find the didache and you find it in the other early church writings where one bishop had to uh, correct, you know, maybe a, a priest or a deacon somewhere where they're messing around with something. And you go, oh, oh, that's what they believed. See? All right. Chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. What? I thought the Philippians were always helping Paul. Well, they were, but look what he says. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. Let me be clear. But you had no opportunity. Not that I complain of, of want, for I have learned to be happy in all these situations. So what's he talking about? He's going to mention it again in verse 14 following. He already mentioned it earlier in chapter 2. These Philippians... From the beginning of his preaching the gospel of Macedonia, they supported him. They were a small community, as far as you can tell, not very wealthy compared to the church in Corinth. But they certainly outgave the church in Corinth, at least way beyond their abilities, he says. So uh, you can read about this. We talked about it before, about this, what they did. Um, I told you to go back and look at 2 Corinthians. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he talked about what they the generosity of the Macedonians, the Philippians. And then here also, uh, again, he refers to this, how they supported him when he was there in Macedonia. It says, in fact, we're going to see this, even when they, he was in Thessalonica, when he moved to the next town, the Philippians sent money to help him in the next town on that second journey. And then we learned that on his third journey, when he passes through Macedonia, he stops in Philippi, they, they unload everything they got, a bass, you know, a big can drive, whatever they can, so that he can then take that down to Corinth and collect some more things and take it back to the Christians in Judea who were suffering from the famine and persecution. So he, he, they have always been supporting him, but there was a certain period when they didn't have an opportunity Right, because after his third journey, he went back to um, to Palestine, and there's a brief moment there when there was no opportunity for them to give anything to him to support him. But now, in prison in Rome, they sent Epaphroditus, one of their own members, with a bag of money or cash or some help, whatever, to support him and help him in his imprisonment. Remember, he was under house arrest, living at his own expense. He was able to do a number of things, and so they they sent Epaphroditus, one of their own members. They paid for Epaphroditus' journey. They paid for Epaphroditus' uh, stay while he was there. And they paid for, they gave money to Epaphroditus to give to Paul to support Paul. And Epaphroditus was supposed to stay the entire time. But Epaphroditus got sick, as you know, and had to come back. 
So that's what he means there. You at last have been able to revive your concern for me. He's referring to the fact that Epaphras came with this bag of money. And he says, not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. That is one of the most beautiful statements I think we find in the New Testament. This is, this is the Christian walk, right? To be content as Job was to be in the state in which he found himself. Whatever it be, right? Naked I came from mother's room, and naked we shall return, right? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's it, right? Praise be Jesus Christ. So in any situation to be content, and this is true sanctification. This is what we, or theosis, whatever you want to call it, is trans, transformation into the life of Christ. So um, let's continue reading there before we lose power again here. Uh, chapter 4, verse 12. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound in any and all circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him. Look at that language, in him. How do you get in him? Galatians 3.27. All of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ right, like a garment. In him, in Christ. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, right? He, they, they sent Epaphroditus with some, with some things to support him. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent to me help once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit which increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am filled, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Look at that language. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. There's another common verse taken out of context, right? You might get that used in the, uh, you know, uh, get rich quick schemes and word of faith movement churches and things like that. He's talking about the riches of the glory in Jesus Christ. Paul talks here about being poor and suffering. There's no health and wealth gospel here. The health and wealth that Paul has is his present state, sacramentally part of the body of Christ, and the knowledge he has, the hope he has, is a future body resurrection, sharing the glory of Jesus Christ, and entering back in the glory of the Garden of Eden which we will turn to in a second. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Who are the saints? Saint? Which one? St. Francis? I don't know which saints were running around at that time. What does the word saint mean? Saint, agios in Greek, holy one. Well, who's holy? I'm looking at you. 
Saint Daniel, Saint Macrina, Saint David, Saint James, Saint Carol, Saint Joy, Saint Susan, Saint Edwin and Marie, Saint Nora, Saint Edna. I'm looking at you. You're sounding like a Protestant. No, I'm not. I'm sounding like Saint Paul. You have been baptized into Jesus Christ. And by virtue of your baptism, you are no longer common. You are no longer a common human being. You're not one of the regular old human beings. You've been baptized into Jesus Christ. You are set apart. And if you believe Jesus is holy, that is set apart, it is unlike other human beings, then you better believe that you are, by virtue of your baptism, your chrismation, and your reception of his body and blood. Now, we use the word saint to me also, those who have made it, right? Those who are waiting, they've, they've got a beautiful saintly life, and we try, the church holds them up for us to model our lives after their lives, right? We, the present saints, are supposed to model our lives after those saints, right? I'm sure there will be questions on that one afterwards. Right? Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Brethren who are with me, greet you all. The saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. Again, a hint to his Roman imprisonment as opposed to Caesarea here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Beautiful. The letter to the Philippians I began last week to tell you is like the polar opposite to the letter to the Galatians right? or 2 Corinthians. There we've got a community that is just giving Paul a really hard time. And Paul has to chastise them really correct them. He's not happy. That's 2 Corinthians, also Galatians. But the letter of Philippians, there's not a heresy that we can tell that was floating around the community. The only thing he has to do is warn them about a, a heresy that might someday show up knocking on the door. That's the Judaizer heresy. Oh, then he says, make sure you love each other and, uh, and hopefully I'll get to see you someday when I get released. And until then, let's wait for the glory of the resurrection. That's it. A very beautiful, happy life. If anyone ever tells you Paul was an angry man, you open up the letter of Philippians and read it to him. Or in fact, ask him, have you ever read the letter of Philippians? Well, no. Have you ever read actually of anything Paul wrote? Well, no, but I heard he was an angry man. Okay, let's read Philippians together and see if you can get a different perspective on Paul. Now, I want to turn with you and then we'll open up to question and answer. As I mentioned to you, the end of the book of Revelation, I think, might answer at least some of the questions you're having regarding this good news that I mentioned, the gospel that Paul is preaching. Turn to Revelation. That's the last book of your Bible. Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We hear about the age of the church, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is, according to the fathers, the age of the church. Not a literal thousand years, but thousand is used in the Bible in many places. Psalm 50, verse 10, for example, to refer to a great massive number that you can't number. Okay, something in the rule. So a thousand years, a thousand year reign of Christ, the, the reign of Christ that goes on for who knows how long. And during that time, the reign of Christ, that is the age of the church, Satan is bound. 
Satan is bound. Wait a minute. Don't you watch CNN? No, I don't, because it's a bunch of nonsense. Might as well read the Inquirer or Star Magazine, okay? But, uh, and, I, and I don't watch Fox News either. I don't have a TV, okay? It's all, it's all nonsense. It's all a bunch of sensationalism. They just want to keep you on that channel. About 10% of what they say is true. The rest of it's all sensationalism. But anyway, so, yeah, I know there's evil out there. I know. I know there's horrible stuff going on out there. However, Satan is bound. Satan is, as we hear elsewhere, like a roaring lion waiting to devour you. But he's a roaring lion in a cage for you as a Christian. If you are a Christian, Satan's a roaring lion in a cage. And he can't hurt you. He can't touch you. He can have no influence on you if you are in Christ Jesus. The problem is that sometimes Christians like to go over and stick their hand in the cage and pet the kitty. Right? Oh, that's a neat Ouija board. Oh, maybe I'll go see uh, the card reader. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're walking over to the lion cage and sticking your hand in the cage, and he'll rip your hand right off. He'll kill you. He'll pull you in the cage and finish you off. Other than that, he's a roaring lion in a cage. I remember when I was at the Omaha Zoo. I used to live in Nebraska for about 10 years. And I would, the Omaha Zoo, big, beautiful place, many, many acres. I remember the first time we visited, we walked through the gate. And we're about 15, 20 yards into the zoo, trying to figure out where we're going to go, looking at a map. And all of a sudden, the lions roared. My heart stopped when I heard the roar of a lion for the first time in my life. Now, you know where these lions were? They were about an acre away from me. About an acre, maybe two acres away. But the roar from that distance put fear in me. But could that lion hurt me? No. So Satan can scare you. He can roar, make a lot of noise. <laughs> there are acres separating you from that cage. You are in Jesus Christ. Just make sure you stay there and don't wander over into the lion den. Now, during this time, Satan is bound. But eventually it says Satan will be released. And when he is released, he will try to gather all nations, says, against the city of God. That is the church. Now don't get scared. There's no mention of the Christians suffering at all here. It simply says there is an attempt to surround the church, to put fear in it, right? The city of God, the new Jerusalem, is surrounded by the wicked. And then it says at that moment, verse 9, when the city was surrounded, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire. It's all over. Oh, that's a nice ending. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Also another book was opened, which is the book of life, and we heard about that in Philippians chapter 4. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done, how they lived their life. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead, and all were judged by what they had done. And then it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So you have, what happened, you have the return of Christ at the end of time. When's that going to be? I don't know, five minutes or 10,000 years from now, as I mentioned. Who knows? We might be the early church. But Christ will eventually return. The dead will be raised. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he will bring with him those who have died before, those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. The dead will be raised and everyone will be judged. The wicked judged according to what they have done, right, in their bodies, the life they have lived, and then they're thrown like a fire as, as a result of their sin. They separate themselves from God. And so they continue in that way. But those whose names were found in the book of life those who found, or found the book of life, right? those who are baptized into Jesus Christ and have remained there, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, look at this, underline, coming down. Coming down. Maybe underline that 300 times. Coming down. Down, make a little arrow. Down, not up. Down. Remember, we await the Savior from heaven, Paul says. And he said, behold. He said, and I saw the Holy Spirit in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Right? Our inheritance, our citizenship, Paul said, is in heaven right now. But that's not the end of the story. We're awaiting it to come here. comes back. Right? Jesus is coming back. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of men is with God. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Behold, look at this, the dwelling of God is with men on earth, where there's gravity. He will dwell with them, and they shall be with his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, he said, who sat on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. It's a, a new creation. A new creation. You've heard this story before. You've read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Right? God's, God created the world the cosmos and everything in it. And he created this big blue ball with gravity. And, and he created it as an environment, a perfect environment into which he would put his children, a home for them. Right? You have a body. You're not going to do well floating around the clouds. Right? Look at, you know, look at the space uh, the astronauts when they come back. They got all sorts of muscular problems, right? Because no gravity. You were designed to have gravity. Part of your creation, everything God made was very good. His original plan. So He restores those things. Then God created man and put him in the garden, and God was with him. God came to dwell with man, but man messed it up. Then God said to man again, in the people of Israel, "Will you keep my commandments? Will you abide by my family rules? If you abide by my rules, I'll come dwell with you." And they said, all the Lord has said we will do, Exodus chapter 19, verse uh, 19 through 24. And so in chapter 25 of the Exodus, God says, make me a sanctuary, verse 8, that I may dwell in their midst. And he dwelt with them. 
the beautiful tabernacle. Garden of Eden reestablished, at least in a certain degree. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story of Israel. It's kind of the story of our own lives, right? Failure after failure after failure. God then eventually comes to dwell with them again. When he says to Solomon, when Solomon wants to build a house for the Lord, he says to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 6, if you keep my commandments, my ordinances, my household rules, then I'll come dwell with you. And I'll dwell among the people of Israel. I'll dwell with you, not you'll dwell with me. So Solomon, at least, starts out that way. They keep the commandments. God he builds the temple, and God comes to dwell in the glory cloud among men. But you know the rest of the story. Israel broke the rules, and the household was broken apart. That dwelling place was destroyed because of man's sin. But then God came to dwell among man. He dwelt among us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us. This is a reminder. The language is borrowed from the, the tabernacle imagery from Exodus. God came to dwell among us. This is why Jesus says, destroy this body in three days, I'll rebuild it. Jesus is the temple of God on earth. He is the Garden of Eden reestablished. He is the, the fulfillment of the tabernacle Moses made, the temple that Solomon built. He is the place where God and man dwell together, 1 Timothy 2.5, right? He is the, the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so we hear that at the end of time, it has all now been fulfilled. He says that God comes to dwell on earth. Now that all of humanity that's left on earth are those who are in accord with his will, right? They're all in Jesus Christ. They're walking in his ways, in the perfect son. Then God comes to dwell among them. So then it says in chapter 21, verse 9, it describes this dwelling of God with man like a beautiful city, like a new Jerusalem. Like a new Jerusalem, or like a beautiful new temple built by God. You can see this language borrowed from, from the Old Testament. And then look what it says in chapter 22. And we'll end here. Chapter 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life. Hey, I saw that before. Last time I saw that was in the Garden of Eden. I wonder why it's there. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God in the land, through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life. Oh, the tree of life. I haven't seen that since we left the garden. I wonder where we are. There shall no more be anything accursed, verse 3, but the throne of God in the land shall be in it, and the servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And night shall be no more. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Christ is risen. Christus resurrexit. Secret dixit. Alleluia. Any questions? Yes, we have a question from Pete who says, could you say a few words about putting things behind in Philippians 3.13. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. So verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, uh, I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So obviously the basic you know, level here, he's talking about looking forward to what's coming as opposed to dwelling on the past, right? Uh, that could mean a reference to past sin, past way of life, or it could be a way of, uh, of looking back, as he just talked about in, in chapter 3, 
verse 1 and following, looking back to the old ways, the law of Moses. So forgetting what Paul was, a Pharisee, Benjaminite, righteous according to the Torah, that's all refuge. Forget all that, but now he strains forward to the future inheritance, the sanctification in Jesus Christ and the bodily resurrection. Okay, any other questions? Yeah, there's one coming in from Harold. Uh, when one dies in the state of grace, will they experience resurrection immediately as they are outside of time? And he kind of talks about that in another question where he says when someone dies, will they experience the consummation of all things because time no longer exists for them? Okay, so first of all, we're talking about a great mystery. Okay? A mystery meaning it's something that we can't fully properly grasp. Okay, we have to acknowledge that. We've unfortunately lost that sense in the modern world that there are theological mysteries, all right? And, and it's a tragedy. You, you ask somebody, can you explain to me uh, the Trinity? Oh, yeah, it's easy. Three persons, one God. Yeah, Father's and Holy Spirit. Inspiration, stuff like that. Oh, got it all in a box, huh? That's the greatest mystery of our faith. How do you have three persons and one God? Now, I can give you lots of explanations of how that's, you know, some ideas, some metaphors, some, some uh, analogies, but in the end, it's a mystery. You read the New Testament, you look at, at the, 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 uh, the, the way that we see the Trinity uh, revealed in the New Testament, certainly there is great mystery there. And if you think there's no mystery, look at all the Christological councils and heresy developed as a result of it. What about the second great mystery of our faith? That is the incarnation. How is it possibly immutable God, the unchangeable God, takes on a human body? He exists outside of time, and yet at this moment, he now exists in time, and yet he remains immutable. That's a theological mystery for sure. Unfortunately, you might have someone, oh, incarnation, I can explain that one. It's pretty simple. And then third and finally, what is the third great mystery of our faith? Salvation, right? Our own sanctification, our own theosis, our own becoming of God. So, that's a great mystery. And so we have to begin when we talk about salvation. We have to talk about our own, uh, which we have to start with understanding that this is a mystery, a mystery that we cannot fully grasp. And so um, when we die, what happens to us? Well, you were created at a point in time. You can't get outside of time. God is outside of time because there's no beginning. But you always are in one way or another governed by time because you have a beginning. Now, as you are part of a part, you're a partaker in the divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, to that degree, you could say you are outside of time in Christ, right? But you are you you came to exist at a certain point in time, you can't get away from it. The clock started ticking. Okay, so that's one thing. Now, so what is it like when you die? Well, I don't know, it's a mystery, but we get a few images in the New Testament to help us. You get in Luke's gospel the story of the, of the rich man and Lazarus, right? One man goes to a time of waiting, out of body. His body's buried. The rich man, who was wicked, not because he was rich, but because he didn't use his wealth properly to care for those who were around him. And so the rich man goes to a place of torment. He's waiting something. The Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, not because he was poor, but because he was righteous in his poverty. He learned how to, as St. Paul says, to be happy in his current state. And he, so he goes to be in the bosom of Abraham. And they're both waiting something. They're awaiting something. And the, and the reference to the awaiting of something comes in the story when the rich man says, well, can't we send Lazarus to one of my brothers? And he says, 
if they don't believe in the law of Moses and the prophets, they don't follow them, they don't listen to them, how are they going to believe one were to rise from the dead, right? The future resurrection. The Jews believed in a resurrection, a future bodily resurrection that was going to come, and they knew there was going to be a judgment. So if, you know, you think of maybe two children uh, at home waiting for their dad to get home. The dad leaves the house for an hour, says, be careful, don't mess around, don't break anything, don't fight, I'll be back in an hour. One of them decides to run around, spray paint the house, break everything, and be crazy. Well, the other one says, please don't do this, you really shouldn't be doing this. When all of a sudden they see dad driving up the driveway, one has an incredible amount of fear as they're waiting for dad to walk in the door. The other one is sitting there smiling, waiting. Mm -hmm. So Lazarus and the rich man are anticipating a future judgment and resurrection. So there's that torment and that joy or peace that the rich man or Lazarus has. Then, uh, and so that's one passage that can help us. In the Eastern Church, we actually, I just heard it in the funeral service today, we pray for the dead that they may be in the bosom of Abraham. It's a, the idea to go to be with the fathers, to go be with the, the saints, that idea from Lazarus. The, um, but then St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then also in, well, as we saw in Philippians chapter 2, we saw this reference to going to be with the Lord. Paul talks about this period of being out of the body and going to be with the Lord. That's all we know. Uh, and then he, and then it says that, uh, and then we know that eventually, First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, that when the Lord returns, He will bring those who have fallen asleep and raise the bodies from the dead, and right, you get your bodies back. So what happens in between time? Well, it's certainly a mystery, but we have enough information based upon the New Testament, the early church tradition, to know that if it is a, if you are waiting bodily resurrection and you lived a wicked life then it's a, 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 a certainly a time of anxiety <laughs> waiting, right? You don't, there's nothing you can do. You're just waiting like that rich man. But if, it's a, um, if you've lived a righteous life, you are with Christ, you are, are in his body when you are alive right now, when you die, you remain in that state, and now simply you've shed the earthly tent, as St. Paul says in St. Corinthians. And so now you go to be with Christ in, without the hindrance of this curtain, this veil. So where is St. Paul right now? Well, he's right here with me in this room because this is where Jesus Christ is. He is with you. If Jesus Christ is God and God is everywhere, then St. Paul, who is in Christ, is with Christ everywhere. This is why we can pray and ask for St. Paul to intercede somewhere and say, well, how could St. Paul hear you? He's in heaven, isn't he? Well, where do you believe Jesus is? Bodily, Jesus may not be here except through the church, your own body, right? Which we, that's why we ask each other to pray for us. But what about someone who's out of the body, like St. Paul? Well, out of the body, he's with the Lord. Where's the Lord? Everywhere. The Lord is God. And so I don't have to worry about whether St. Paul can hear me if I ask him to pray for me. He's right here with me because St. Paul is in Christ. And where Christ is, St. Paul is. All right? Or any of our loved ones who have fallen asleep in the Lord right, in sanctification, in a state of sanctification. All right, maybe that, probably a little more than you wanted there. Any other questions? Lisa asks, a Protestant friend wants me to ask, do we see our loved ones after death as we knew them, like father, brother? And if so, 
And do they appear in bodily form or are we more spirit form and unrecognizable? What do you think? I'm a prophet? It's a mystery. We don't know these things. But uh, do they have bodies? Absolutely. What do, what do you mean? It's hard to know what they mean. See, what's probably being confused there in the question is the end. Again, for most people, they think of salvation as going from this earth and bodily life to a spiritual floating around angelic life type thing. Well, there is that spiritual floating angelic life kind of thing, that intermediate period that St. Paul's talking about going to be with the Lord. But, the, but then when you get your body back, the second coming, then you're, you're back on earth. Okay, you're not floating around anymore. Those bodies are governed by gravity. So, um, uh, so it's hard to know exactly with that, with that question where they were going with it. Look, let me just say this, and I think that'll end it on any of those more, any further questions regarding this. Then we can move on to another topic. That is this. In the ancient world, the ancient pagan religions were dualists. We've talked about this before. Dualists. They believed that all of the creation, all of existence could be divided into two realms, good and evil. Yin and the yang, right? You still get this in the, in the, um, in the uh, Asian religions because a lot of the, ancient, the Asian religions, Buddhism, Hindu, these are very old-time religions, right? They are preserving an ancient paganism that you just don't see any much around anymore today. But that idea of the two forces, the dark and the light, remember Star Wars and George Lucas, he was into this nonsense. If you ever talk to a new ager, it basically it boils down to this. The ancient pagans believed, contrary to the Geo-Christian tradition, the ancient pagans believed that there were good gods and bad gods. Okay? The good gods created human beings that were spirit children. They were just floating around, spirit children. These are the spirit gods. Good, good, happy spirit gods had spirit children. But then tragically, the bad gods made the material world to trap the spirit children and take them captive. And so the bad gods created this earth, the material world, as your prison, and then your body is your individual prison cell, which captured the spirit children, pinned them on the earth. And so for the ancient pagans, salvation was death and release from this material world, from your body, and to float off in the clouds and push the plants around with your happy spirit parent gods again. You ever talk to a Mormon? It's not too far off. But that's for another topic. So, the, so now, that's paganism. The Judeo-Christian tradition is very different from that. There is one God who created everything, material and spiritual, and it was very good. And that means that the spiritual world and the material world is not an enmity. It's just a matter of that they need to be restored, resurrected, as St. Paul says. Just like you and spirit can be raised through baptism, through sacrament, you will physically be raised at the end of time as a result of that. And so the, the creation itself, the whole world, St. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and what we see in Revelation at the end there, will be restored, re resurrected, raised, and restored to its original purpose. That's salvation. The resurrection of the material world, part of that, and the most important part, is your body and the Garden of Eden where you're going to dwell with it, Right? So when you think of salvation, what do you mean by that? What do you mean will happen at the end of time? For most people, the bodily resurrection is just not on the radar screen. Though this is the faith, and this is what we say in the creed every Sunday, for some reason, the dualist pagan heresy has crept back in. And you go ask your sister, your mother, your brother, your friend, if they're a Christian, ask them what will happen to them when they die. And they'll get typically, tragically, a very dualistic 
eschatology. I'm going to float off the clouds, freed from this material world, from my material body, and there I'm in the clouds floating around forever. Well, tragically, that's pagan dualism, and it's in the mind of most Christians today. But we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we too may rise from the dead. All right, now, any questions that are on a different topic besides eschatology and resurrection and the body? Eileen is asking, did all the people in Philippi, Corinth, etc., that Paul taught speak Greek? Oh, yeah. Well, as far as we know, I mean, the Philippi was a Greek colony. It was uh, uh, originally, and Greek was the language of the region. I mean, it's like, it's like asking someone in the United States, do they speak English? Well, I mean, I have to assume, and basically. So in Philippi, probably multiple languages were floating around. Greek would have been the regular dominant language you have heard on the street, in every household. But there were a few Jews around. Some of them may have spoke some Aramaic, but Hellenized Jews in Philippi would have just spoke Greek probably. Um, there would have been, you might see a Roman soldier from Rome talking to another Roman soldier. Remember, it was a Roman colony at that point. So they might have been talking to each other in Italian or Latin. Paul. But the normal language would have been Greek, which is why he wrote the epistle in Greek. Okay. Great. All right. Uh, in two minutes or less, why did the Western Church change the baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist ordering? Two minutes or less? <laughs> we need a we need a, uh, a whole other uh, uh, Sophia symposium on that or on this. You, uh, for the Magdala Apostle, we have a course called Biblical Catechetics, where we kind of do that. We deal with that in great detail. But in a nutshell, I'd say this. I don't have time to answer it all. Um, first of all, let me give you two resources. Charles Davis, D-A-V-I-S. Charles Davis, D-A-V-I-S. The Sacraments of Initiation. The Sacraments of, of Initiation. It's out of print, but you can pick it up for about 10 bucks on Amazon on used or used dealer. Wonderful read. The best, shortest, simple, get to the point history of what happened, where they got, where they started, and where how we got to where we are today, and why many dioceses in the West today are trying to fix this, the order back again. Um, uh, another resource for you, and very important on this, would be the Catechism in its sections on baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist, notice the order. In the catechism, whenever it talks about these three sacraments, it always talks about them in that order, and it even structures the discussion of the catechism on baptism. Then it talks about confirmation and chrismation, and then it talks about Eucharist, because this is the ancient order. It's not until uh, the 1920s that you ever had Christians receiving communion without having first been confirmed. It goes back to the 1920s. Before 1920, every Christian for 2,000 years was confirmed before receiving communion. And for a Christian to receive communion without being confirmed was as uh, theologically catastrophic in the mind of a Christian at the time as if I told you that a non-baptized received communion. Because for the church, as you'll see in the catechism, Confirmation chrismation is the second part of the baptismal service. There's the dunking in the water, and then there's the laying on hands with the oil. These are two parts to one event. As St. Cyprian, a Western father said, North Africa, St. Cyprian of Carthage, he referred to baptism and chrismation as the double sacrament. Okay? So 
uh, I'm going to turn you rather than spend. There's no way I can do it in three. <laughs> I'll just say in a nutshell, and that is this. In the early church, whenever possible, the church baptized, then confirmed, laid on of hands or with the oil, and then the people were given communion in that order and all together whenever possible, regardless of age. For the first thousand years of the church, there is no ambiguity on that. That system starts to break down slowly in the West uh, due to some historical events, not theological events. They're historical events that result in some distancing of these sacraments from each other. And then once they're distanced, then eventually by the time they get to the next thousand years, this just our, uh, just recently in the 20s, the flipping around of the last two of them. But thank God through the work of people like Jean Daniellu, I'll recommend another resource for you, Jean Daniellu as well, if you really want to get into this, after you read the Catechism and Charles Davis, Jean Daniellu, The Bible and the Liturgy. Wonderful resource. This is this book and the teachings of Jean Daniello are in many ways behind the authors in the catechism on baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist. When you read Jean Daniello's book, and then you go read those, those paragraphs, you're going to see that those authors had all obviously either read this book or studied under Daniello directly. And what you find today now as well, as a result of this wonderful catechism and discussion of these issues, is thank God the beginning of a restoration of the proper order of the sacraments in the West, because it has been a catechetical disaster ever since they were flipped around. This is why you get those ideas of confirmation as a bar mitzvah. And if it's a bar mitzvah, why many teenagers say, well, why do I need it? What's the point of it all? It's a, it's a disaster. When you mess with the liturgy, you mess with theology. Lex orandi, lex credendi. And theology and catechesis is, of course, one and the same. So the, um, this is extremely important. This is why the church, like I said, is starting to restore these things, at least the proper order. Then the age at which they're received will eventually be, uh, will be restored as well, I think. All right. Any other All questions? right. That, uh, that's a good answer. A bit longer than two minutes, but we'll, we'll let you pass. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. That, it's been a wonderful two weeks studying St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. And on behalf of everybody, thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635. 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.